One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like noodles, decisions, and number six. Or slings, sings, and lings. I think that's fish. Wings, pings, and dings. I'd love to do the history of fish. History of fish. Haven't have we written about fish recently? Yes, Roman, I, I did Roman, it in Romans. Roman that's why fish. I wanted to Roman write about fish. it so much that I've already written about yes. fish. Yes. <laughs> wonder what I said. <laughs> But it was excellent, excellent stuff. <laughs> excellent stuff about it. We, why don't we dare ourselves to do fish? Okay, we can do that. We'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of humans, or just done humans, is all about fossils in the forefront of knowledge, Hamlet and the Elizabethan great chain of being, G.R. Elton and the meaning of history, and also... Otters and clever crows. Oh, don't know what that means. Go and listen to our back catalogue. Check out our history of humans. The man sitting opposite me, he is the man with the golden pen. The microdot of history itself. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, Sam. Hello, Sam. We are so unoriginal, the two of us, because you are the 007 <laughs> of world history, neither shaken nor stirred. Uh, <laughs> right, the famous historical adventurer, the wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. You saved yourself with the neither shaken nor stirred. That was bordering on lazy. <laughs> bordering on lazy, but, but also bordering on total genius. Yes, absolutely. Um, we are... Doing spies today. We are, and there's this little uh, little talk that we have today. Little show for you today is going to be followed up with a special where we are interviewing Miss Walsingham herself, Nadine Ackerman from Leiden University. So I'll be talking to her about her new book on female spies in the 17th century. And if you enjoy what we are going to talk about, we've got other podcasts you can check out too that we've done on similar themes. So we've done Eyes. We've done Eyes. Secrets. And we've done, what else have we done? Privacy. Privacy. Mm. Have we done, we've done Secrets. Holes. Holes. I remember yep. Holes. Secrets mentioned Holes. Yeah, eggs. Holes. We'll do a spying on eggs. Eggs. Yeah, so it's a thing. It's a, you're, you're interested Letters. in spies and secrets. Oh, I love Love spies. Love spies. Like I've made... The best thing I did in my career, I think, 
was writing a chapter in my book, The Material Letter, on secret letters, mm -hmm. which basically got me into all this sort of secret handwriting and codes and invisible ink and the world of spies and Elizabethan espionage. And it's become a sort of stock in trade for me ever since. Hmm, keep uh, returning to it. Anytime people want to do a, something about Mary Queen of Scots, uh, the bright young researchers Google, uh, Google up Mary Queen of Scots and courtesy of Google and Amazon Books, uh, my chapter pings up at them. Oh, well, that's good. Yes. And having done a few of these topics with you, I have to say that my understanding of spies and secrets and secrecy has slightly transformed. Ooh. Massively transformed. In a good way? A hugely good have way. I, have I broadened your horizons yes. and your knowledge? Um, and certainly understanding the mechanics of transferring and sharing secrets Yes, is interesting. Um, I wouldn't say that's a particularly unexpected theme, but if you go deep into spies and secrecy, then you, you it throws up all sorts of wonderful things, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, part, part it's it's two ways. So part of it is part of that is how you transmit information secretly. So it's how you communicate, and you think about how governments and states and businesses and the church and whatever wants to communicate in a secret way. But then the other, the other side is espionage, which is about spying on people. And it's actually getting those secrets, so it's cracking those codes. It's also, it's also spying on people who are not communicating in, in secret code like that. It is infiltrating businesses and government and the military and, you know, whatever, families... Um, and getting information in various ways. So it's about thinking about the the different kinds of spying that you might have. You think about how that changes across history. And we have evidence of spying from early ancient societies um, through to the present day. And you think about how how that changes over time, how it fits into the Cold War, the Civil War, the First World War, whatever war you, you want. Um, think about it in terms of technologies, uh, to the that are there. If you think about some of the early technologies, even the Romans and the Greeks would communicate by having little sticks, and wrapped around those sticks would be a little piece of leather, and on the leather would be written a little secret note. So you could pass this little stick wrapped around with this secret message on it from leader to leader and then they would unravel it and read it. But for you, it's always been about the different means and methods of communication and, and what, yep. you can, yep. what you can get from recovered secret documents. Yes, so it's, about, it's, looking at, so it's looking at manuscript practices. So it's looking at how people have written in generally letter form, uh, but not, not necessarily letter form, but, but written using secret forms of writing, whether that be secret alphabets, whether it be cipher codes, whether it be in invisible ink. But it's also about the way in which people carry those kinds of documents, how they secrete them upon themselves, how, whether they bury them in, you know, different items. Uh, that what I've studied distinctly the 16th and 17th century, but this has a, this has a huge history outside of that. Uh, and we can talk a little bit later on about some of the the um, technologies that people might have used. You mentioned microdots. Yeah. You know, and the microdot camera uh, and how you put a tiny, tiny message uh, on a microdot that then somebody with a special camera can blow up and, and, and see a body of information. 
I think um, the whole idea of hiding in plain sight appeals to me. The sense of mm. that's to do with disguise, but it's also to do with symbolism of clothes. So disguises work because, say, clothes mean something yes. which will allow you to not think about it. So it's to do with how and why people dress and behave in certain situations. So to be an effective spy, you've got to have a very good understanding of humanity or got a good advisor, yes. a good, good, yes. good person to give you the right clothes, and you've got to yes. fit in. So to understand how a spy is working in a particular location, you have to understand the culture of what's going on there. So you can actually use the history of spies to massively help you understand a particular moment in time, a particular history. Yes. And in that respect, spies become a massively important historical tool. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd be interested in that. And, and also doublespeak. I'm always fascinated by doublespeak. <laughs> you know, the oral tradition of, of, of it, I suppose. So you're looking at the written tradition of spying and you've got the material culture of what's actually written down. But the way it would have happened in terms of conversation is obviously very difficult to recover as a historian. But it's the whole idea of actually saying one thing and meaning the opposite. Yes. And um, I love that as a historian because it kind of pulls the rug away from what you're doing. So, yeah. so much about being a historian is recovering something. Oh, he's got a document here and it's signed and he says this. Yeah. Um, but of course, it doesn't mean that he means that. Yes. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a reminder of the, the need to be critical, the need to be conscious of what, what happens as a historian. I think um, if I reinvented my career and became a spy historian, I'd be looking at that. Also... It's also interesting looking at what you said about the, the history of spies telling you something about a particular period. And if you think about that in terms of the frequency of spying and how you relate that to different periods, it, would, it will crop up at particular points of crisis or conflict between states, between nations. So we think about, you know, about times of war. We think about the Cold War in particular, and the you know the the sort of spying between uh, east and west. You think about it in the 16th century, um, when we have a with the Reformation. You've got you've suddenly got um, you know very sort of tense relationships across Europe. Different powers wanting to know exactly what the other power is doing, and so you see the rise of the spy during that period. So it becomes quite an exciting exciting period but also thinking about different kinds of spying and why you want to spy so part of it is about it's about military advantage so you want to spy on your enemies and i think that's a you know that's a really you know a very ancient tradition you're going out and doing a recce of the of the terrain and seeing where where people are there's industrial espionage so wanting to go out and you know and basically get secrets from people about technology so that you can bring them back to your own country there's i meant naval intelligence um there is civil intelligence as well so you know when we looked at the history of the paperclip uh the paperclip is all about the stasi and the stasi were the sort of secret police in east germany and they were spying on the people and I think that that's one of the things I'm going to talk about, mass observation. Actually, you know, before we move on, just I'm going to be talking about this a little bit later on, but um, it's also interesting how the types of information people are getting changed with the times and with the cultures. Mm. Um, so I'm going to be talking about Daniel Defoe, the famous author who became a, yes. became a, became a spy yes. for, for the English government yes. in Scotland. Yes. And that's at a time 
late 17th, early years of the 18th century, uh, before the Act of Union in mm. 1707. And what what's important about it is that Defoe is a pamphleteer and he, he is spying in an age of crazy pamphleteering where there are pamphlet wars going on. Um, there's mass open public debate through the printed media. Yep. And that reflects a sort of mass open public debate in coffee shops. Yes. And so it's a period of debate, opinion and printing, which is unlike anything that's happened before. Yep. And what the government realised they need to do is to get into that somehow. So they use Defoe, who is a pamphleteer, um, to wheedle his way into this world of opinion and debate and pamphleteering. Which, which didn't exist before, or if it did, it was in a much watered down, more watered-down form. And then it yep. changed again once the, the pamphleteering changes to newspapers and it, it just sort of yep. slightly shifts. So the type of spying that Defoe was doing in the early years of the 18th century is unlike... Well, it, you, you have to understand it within its own context. So you, you, you have yep. to be a... The, the best historian of spying at the moment of the Act of Union will be an, a specialist on... Exactly what's happening at that time. It would be very difficult for a general historian of spies to really put his his or her finger on what it was to be a spy exactly at that moment. Yeah, and and what you see there in particular is a rise of uh, the public sphere. So something that's very very different. And suddenly, with the advent of print, and you know, it's this sort of pre-democracy. You're suddenly getting that sort of widespread pu- public debate. Um, that we that we haven't had. I mean, historians argue about whether we can, you know, run that back to the 16th century or even earlier. But you know, really, it is the 18th century that that sees it um, largely. So one of the things that I want to talk about is civil intelligence agencies and the way in which states spied on their on their people, and we can see this across history. We take, for example, the 16th century, which we've talked about with holes before, and we've looked at when we've talked about spying and privacy and even eyes. And that was literally people looking through holes and walls. Literally looking yeah. through through holes and walls. And this was this was neighbours looking at at, uh, at what their adulterous neighbours were up to, or it is um, it was the eyes on Elizabeth's dress and that famous portrait of her, which was a sort of the eyes of the state. But this um, brings me to. Big Brother. Uh, we think of Big Brother as the um, as the, the that dreadful uh, television show. I mean, it's quite in its early days. It was in its early days. It was, um, I think, it was quite in, enticing. Um, uh, but I'm thinking really of George Orwell's novel, uh, 1984, where Big Brother is the leader of Oceana. So this this sort of fictional totalitarian state. Uh, which sees a ruling party, Ingsot, Sock, reading, wielding total power. And basically, uh, the every citizen in the country is under surveillance, uh, mainly by television screens, but also by a whole range of, of other uh, devices. So TV screens, microphones hidden in trees... There are thought crimes, so the thought police can catch anyone suspected of a crime. There is community involvement. So basically, you know, your neighbours, your family or whatever are all spying on you. Um, privacy is, you know, it, you know, you just can't sit. If you're sitting there watching the TV, it's not only projecting stuff out to you, 
but it's also recording exactly what you're doing. So it picks up everything that isn't uh, a tiny whisper. And there's a there's an extract uh, in at the beginning of of 1984 uh, where it describes the main protagonist Winston uh, and it says he took a 25 cent piece out of his pocket there too in tiny lettering the same slogans were inscribed and on the other face of the coin the head of big brother even from the coin the eyes pursued you on coins on stamps on the covers of books on banners on posters and on the wrapping of a cigarette packet everywhere always the eyes watching you and the voice enveloping you asleep or awake working or eating indoors or out of doors in the bath or in bed no escape nothing was your own except the few cubic centimeters inside your skull so there's that Whoa. sense in, yeah totally <laughs> Love that. there's that sense in which you've got this alt uber surveillance state uh, and in some ways this is sort of you know this this is exactly what happened in totalitarian regimes throughout the 20th century, which Orwell was probably in, in, inspired inspired by. Um, we see it happening in in earlier regimes as well. Um, I mean, certainly in in the reign of Henry VIII. Um, you know, as soon as some of the treason legislation was put forward, you would be in an alehouse and there would be people listening to what you were saying. And then they would go to the sort of local magistrates and report on you. So you, you know, you'd, you'd be people would have their, you know, their neighbour reporting on them. Well, that's interesting. So it's actually linked with the history of public discussion. Yes, isn't it? We're eavesdropping. Eavesdropping, but you need to be snooping. in a public place yes. having a public discussion where other people are doing so. So yes. hence the rise of the coffee houses which, yes. and things like yes, that we were talking absolutely. about earlier and pubs. So it's, mm. yeah, so people would often be, it wouldn't necessarily be snooping on people in their own homes, it would be snooping on people in public places and overhearing people. Uh, but this, you know, 1984 is literally going in and observing what people are saying in their own home. It's infiltrating at that kind of level. And you think about the way in which privacy today is being eroded, you know, through the use of these devices, you know, smartphones, um, you know, um, cameras all over the high street, you know, you can be pinpointed. I mean, these things, GPS, I mean, you go out with this, this sort of thing, everything you put into it is recorded. If you're on Facebook all your decisions, all the all the connections that you have with people are being mapped by algorithms, and then people are being targeted. You know, we hear nowadays the the way in which the amount of spying that can be done on people's personal lives and choices and decisions that they make are in some ways undermining the very democracy that you know that the twentieth century was fought to you know to to uphold. And so the way in which people are being are being targeted. I mean, I saw recently a um, documentary about the way in which Facebook was being used during the U.S. election and particularly around the Brexit debate and particularly around Brexit. What what happened there with Cambridge Analytica was that they identified a cohort of people who were completely undecided on the issue and then targeted them in a really sustained way you know, with the kinds of techniques that manage to sort of tip them over to vote in a particular way. And I think and you have a look at how the American um, the American election operates, and I think very similarly there, in some of the states, the sort of swing states there, you're looking at you're looking at maybe, you know, a couple of thousand voters that shift one way or another 
and you've you've shifted a state and then that manages to shift the election and i think i think it's it's the it's the sort of political importance of spying there that's being that's being used and so you know this is why we're seeing all this sort of tightening up of of you know, of regulation around freedom of information and and mm. that kind of thing. It makes you conscious of your own history as well when it happens. You know, yes. I got an email the other day saying, uh, "Dr. Willis, are you interested in a holiday to Venice?" Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Well, <laughs> I would be, but I've only just been." Ah, yes. <laughs> is that the reason? You yes. know, you suddenly think, "Oh, someone, so, someone somewhere knows that I've just been to Italy." Yes. And, um, and, yes. <laughs> do you know? I I get um I get bags <laughs> i have something of a bag fetish uh like you know carry on and laptops and and kind of and so i keep getting you know i search for suitcases and things like that to sort of carry around uh sad that i am and razors that's that's what i'm being and shirts and shoes i'm being bombarded with that that's my own my very own history now a part of this is to do with You've got bad, you've got spies who are the baddies, or you've got the people who are doing the spying. Spies aren't necessarily bad. In this they case. They may be good. Possibly. Okay, you've in got this people case. doing yes. the spying. Yes. They are the active spy, spiers, and then you've got the, the sort of the, the people being spied upon, the spies. Yeah. Um, but there are other people that get sucked into this world of espionage, which I quite like, who, who would not necessarily have been previously involved. And I, I like that. Yeah. And I like the fact that of the type of people, that might get sucked in. Here's a little story, so I'll give you at least some idea of what the hell I'm talking about. Okay. October 1775, we're in the American Revolution. So, the British are attacking, and the Americans are in a bit of a panic. Um, they're camped at Cambridge just outside Boston. And then, suddenly, a woman who was described as a very lusty woman, much pitted with smallpox. She mm. comes in, she's been apprehended, and she's bundled in, for some interrogation. And upon her person, she is discovered to have a letter. And the letter is written in code. Hmm. Now, it's one of these interesting code where the code, you have a letter in the alphabet which is substituted for a different letter and so on. So it's quite basic, but it's gibberish unless you can sit down and work out what's going on. And the way to break it is you, you, you try and work out which letter is represented by the most common letters in English. Hmm. Um, starting with E, T, A, O, and then and then on you go. Anyway, this code was broken, and it turned out that the letter, which is about 850 words long, gave details of American strength and artillery in New York, um, casualties which had suffered um, at the recent Battle of Bunker Hill, troop numbers in Philadelphia, ammunition supplies, all crucial, crucial information for the British. Now, I'm particularly interested in the deciphering of this letter. Because, you know, this is 1775. This is not in the middle of World War II. And it is given to some people. Mom deserves the best. And there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Who are loyal, but who have a knack for puzzles. And that ability to have a knack for puzzles suddenly places these people, they weren't soldiers, they were just minding their own business, fundamentally smack bang in the middle of the war. And it's about... In this instance, spying for me is, is is about almost like normal people living their lives and then being confronted with history, being plunged right into the the face of something, but being massively unprepared for it. Apart from having, you know, they're, they're, these guys are quite good at crosswords or, yeah. or Sudoku, or whatever it is they're doing. Um, and I loved I loved that thing, and it got me thinking about Bletchley Park. Oh yes, yes. In the Second World War, where. Um, for those of you who don't know, it was a country house which was taken over by British intelligence services and it was filled up with brain brain boxes to try and crack the German ciphers and the codes, particularly in relation to um, defending ourselves against the submarine threat at a crucial time early in, on in the war where the Germans were trying to strangle the British by destroying their trade. And it very, very nearly worked. Mm. But it was stopped by a lot of extremely clever people. Alan Turing is a name that you, yeah, you recognise. Yeah. But around him, very clever people. And they they literally recruited, you'd like this, uh, men and women of a professor type. <laughs> <laughs> God, not, not me. No, I'm no, useless at that sort of useless thing. Of that sort they of need thing. a sort of boffin, mathsy um, boffin. So mathsy boffins. But um, it's really interesting because of, of the enormous amount of women they, recruit, they recruited. By 1945, 75% of the staff at Bletchley were women. What I mean, what what were they doing? That's were they administrative? No, they roles? were they uh, were actually uh, yeah. crack, crackers, elbows deep in the cracking. Right. Oh, great. Yeah. So that's great. There's um, if you uh, are anywhere near a computer listening to this, do please have a look at BletchleyPark.org.uk, which is their fantastic website. Um, and they have a roll of honor, and it allows you to search for who worked. At Bletchley Park. Now, I do this quite a lot. Usually, when there's a um, some kind of memorial, some kind of World War One or World War Two memorial, and I always look to see if there's a Willis, and there never is. I think we're basically lost to history. Um, apart from well, the, the reason we're lost to history is everyone, every Willis on the planet was in Bletchley Park. Really? Well, let me type in Willis here. I, I, I recommend you do so, James. Okay. I've just typed in Willis. Willis. You don't want to type in Daybell. No, well, I bet there's, no, there's <laughs> yeah. nobody there. Yeah. Uh, I find nobody. There's one. Oh, that can't be right. Got right. Let me take you through them. We have Diana Willis, Albinia Willis, Ooh. great name, Eva Willis, Anne Christine Willis, E.M. Yes. Willis, Martha Willis, Mary Willis, Mary Elizabeth Willis, Myrtle Willis, Olive Willis, Joan Willis, Vicky Willis, Alfie Willis, Roy Willis, E.C. Willis, L.A. Willis. Oh, what are they doing? Just... Uh, 
handful of them. So everyone do have a look at Bletchley Park. It's a fabulous website and it's a great place. You can go and look around it. Um, yeah, so my point about this was it's about people and how they react to the call of history about being sucked up in events that you may not suspect. And it, I think it happens quite a lot in the history of spying, where you've got someone wheedling away on his own mission and someone being stopped. And the repercussions of what they get up to sort of outweigh what would normally happen. And so, you know, when you think about spies, you've got to think about all of the other people who are going to be affected by this spying, James. Yes. I was out uh, for a drink with a spy uh, very recently. A great sentence. Uh, and he, or former spy, uh, and he was telling me about some of the some of the sort of recent techniques. I mean, apparently now you can get a sort of little ball of the equivalent of a ball of wires, and you just lob it into somebody's garden, and then it just happens. It just that, that's it. It's there. You've just got such complex sort of listening wow. technology in there, and you can and from that you can sort of get into their Wi-Fi and just eavesdrop on absolutely everything. Uh, that that you've got, um, and and it got me thinking about. Is it a small this... ball of wires? It's not an enormous ball of wires full of it's pro- people. It's probably not. Computers. It's probably not an enormous ball of wire that you um that you that would be obviously seen. And it was going to be smaller. Um, it'll be not like one of those tumbleweeds. It'll be smaller. No, than it'll that, be will like it? a a ball of. I mean, it, this was this was <laughs> this was a conversation. You know, late at night over the whiskey <laughs> bottle, um, and it was just a sort of. You know, this is probably not a sort of particularly technical uh, definition of modern uh, spying technology. Beware, Beware small but balls a, of wires. But a ball of wire, sort of ball of wires, uh, chucked over. It got me thinking about the. You know, so the kinds of devices that that people have for spying nowadays um and you know the way in which the the way in which governments are able to use uh the internet and devices to basically control um to spy on people so for example um there's something called the cotton mouth one which is basically just a like a sort of usb cable um, that you just put into something and it allows that you to just get into all their information or something that the that the I think the CIA use uh, called the nightstand uh, which is a sort of hardware device that allows you to put uh, your pajamas up to basically you, so that you can basically from about 80 miles away you can deliver cyber attacks to various places and be able to sort of spy on them um, but this, and also the, um, have you come across those um, those sort of little um, mosquito sort of insects that are about three millimeters uh, big? And I'm I'm holding up my fingers about three millimeters apart, and Sam's sort of nodding. Um, they have little cameras in, and so you sort of fly them around, and you're being um, you're finding yourself filmed, and this. Technolo- these spying technologies have a, have a long history. And we talked about... That's where I'm going with this. Um, and we talked about the, the sort of leather strap. We've talked about the writing technologies. But for a long time, there have been all sorts of inventions that people have come up with. Um, the cipher wheel in the, in the, uh, in the um, Renaissance period, which allows you to create and decode messages. Silver bullets... Silver bullets in the 18th century, which were um, little silver bullets, and they were hollow, and you would pull them apart, and then you'd tuck a little message inside it, and then you'd you'd fire it. That's my gun noise. You'd fire it, and that would take a 
a message, a secret message uh, to people. Invisible ink, the sympathetic stain, uh, which is a sort of chemical uh, that you'd write in and then you'd use another chemical to reveal it. Um, they, they're also pigeon cameras. I like the sound of that. Pigeon cameras, which were which are not like our mosquitoes, robotic, but they are literally uh, pigeons uh, that had cameras tied to them. There we are. There's one. Look at that. <laughs> sort of ca <laughs> camera mounted on the front of it. Um, when we wrote our World War II book, and we wrote about handkerchiefs being used as, as, um, as maps, uh, sort of escape um, devices, we also talked about... Um, the use of board games like Monopoly yes. that was smuggled into oh, like into prisoner of war camps Everyday and inside it was all sorts of things uh, that were being used for swag. we talked about the microdot camera that's the 1960s so a camera this is a little sort of um, it could basically take photographs of documents and reproduce them in these tiny miniature dots. I'm sure that's in James Bond somewhere. Um, rectal escape kits, uh, which are little sort of little um, little capsules uh, that you would secrete uh, uh, on your person uh, rectally, and they contained all sorts of things uh, inside them. Uh, <laughs> lipstick. <laughs> then you've got to run away. No, you haven't bricked lips, it so much. And lipstick, it's not there anymore. Lipstick pistols. <laughs> Um, I've so, seen one of them. I I remember you. This was on your Britain's Armed History, wasn't it? Yeah. So that's at the uh, in the underground car park. <laughs> There's a sort of arms bunker under the car park by the Royal Armouries. Wonder hmm. if I'm supposed to tell you this? No, maybe not. But <laughs> well, I, I think you told the nation uh, on on. <laughs> they've on they've BBC. got a collection of spy weapons. Right. Tremendous. Yeah. Do they have a doggy do transmitter? A T1151. Uh, so this is a transmitter uh, that is uh, camouflaged as uh, dog poo. Right. Um, and in it there's a radio transmitter and homing device, which was used by the US Air Force in Vietnam, the Vietnam War. Cyanide glasses. I mean, we could go up. Umbrella, poisonous umbrellas. We could go on with this list of, of spy technology. List of spy technology. Um... Just about toy, boys and toys. Boys and toys. So let's think about the human side of it a little more. This is where I want to get come to Daniel Defoe. Oh, do. As a wonderful quote. Um, so he is a very, very interesting person. The more I read about Daniel Defoe, the more interest I get. I get the sense of him being um, very, very hyperactive with words sort of bubbling out from inside him and getting in, being enormously excited that he's been given this task from a very high politician, Robert Harley, to go up to Scotland to find out what's going on there um, and how they feel about the Act of Union hmm. that's coming up, which is, you know, the, the uniting two nations under one monarch. And he occasionally, well, he's straight up bragging, basically. He describes yep. what he's been up to. And here's, here's a little thing he has to say. I've compassed my first and main step happily enough in that I am perfectly unsuspected as corresponding with anybody in England. I converse with Presbyterian, Episcopal dissenter, Papist and non-juror, I hope with equal circumspection. I flatter myself you will have no complaints of my conduct. I have faithful emissaries in every company and I talk to everybody in their own way. To the merchants I'm about to settle here in trade, building ships etc with the lawyers i want to purchase a house and land to bring my family and live upon it god knows when the money is to pay for it 
to lay I'm going into partnership with a member of parliament in a glass house. Tomorrow, another in assault work. With the Glasgow mutineers, I'm to be a fish merchant. With the Aberdeen men, a woolen merchant. And with the Perth and Western men, a linen manufacturer. And still at the end of all discourse, the union is essential. And I'm all to everyone that I may gain some. So he wrote that in November 1706. And it's fantastic. For the one specific reason is that the qualities that he's describing there that make him uh, an effective spy. It's worth saying, actually, that his comment, I'm perfectly unsuspected as corresponding with anybody in England, is massively untrue. <laughs> so he, he thinks he's got away with it and everyone knows he's a spy. Um, but what, what, what he's actually talking about there is a ability to observe yeah, and then an ability to sort of morph into it, to almost be like a ventriloquist when it comes to sitting down and talking to... So he, he he's, he's being an actor, he's being an observer, he is altering his appearance, his accent, his language, uh, his back history, everything he needs to to fit in with these different groups, whether they're lawyers, doctors, merchants. Mm. And that's absolutely fascinating because those skills are also the skills that make you a good novelist. I can see where you're going. Here. Yeah, so it's, it is <laughs> no surprise... I think that Defoe and others have become famous novelists, and, they, and the, some people have actually lived the yep. life yep. they describe um, when it comes to uh, spy novels. Uh, John le Carre is yes. is obviously the best known. Ian uh, Fleming, yes, very good. Um, I'm just thinking about what what, what le Carre got up to. Quite a lot. Um, MI5, MI6 conducting break-ins, interrogations, all sorts of bits and pieces. And he's yep. you know, the most famous spy author in the world. But the, um, it just made me, me sit down and think about the, the, what, what requirements are needed for a spy and how they cross over into other disciplines. Yep. And in fact, I mean, I, while I was doing some prep for this, I was reading about the training of spies um, and the institute in Russia that was supposed to sort of train spies throughout the Cold War. And they teach them all the sort of traditional tricks of the trade and how to sort of interrogate people and how to spy on people, blah, 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 blah. But there's also um, the use of sexual favours as well. So, and honey traps, um, uh, an art that's called, uh, has been nicknamed um, sexpionage. Hmm. And it's basically the technique to seduce people and get them into... Comprom compromising situations, take photographs of them and then blackmail them, and then use them to that use them to pull out secrets uh, from their country. And there's a whole history of this um, heterosexual, homosexual um, sort of honey traps that have been used by notable individuals uh, across the the twentieth century, um, including Commander Courtney. Uh, his commander, Anthony Courtney, uh, um, who spoke fluent Russian uh, in 1961, uh, slept with his uh, in-tourist guide, uh, who was a trained KGB seductress. And they have the they had a hotel room set up next door. They captured everything on camera. The KGB then tried to blackmail him um, uh, he refuses. The, per the pictures were then circulated to members of parliament and business associates and private eye 
the satirical journal uh, got hold of the photos, published them, and Courtney was sort of brought down. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, didn't in the end, in the end, spy. But one of the things that I'm to sort of we might think of the sort of as we're wrapping up is how you write a history of spies. And one of the things that we we often do is we talk about the kinds of records that survive and with these kinds of activities so much of them are covert um so much of them are secret that it's quite hard to recover them um you know and a lot of the stuff that we talked about right at the beginning is, is secret correspondence and secret writing a lot of this material will be destroyed uh the fact that some of that survives you know um burn this letter you know you often find on on correspondence some of those letters aren't burned but a lot of them are are burned you know and there's also a rule a 30-year rule in the united kingdom that means that you can't go into the records of state and certainly things that are highly secure highly sensitive people will not be allowed to to look at but if you go to the National Archives and you type in security service, uh, which I just did, um, if you're interested in the period uh, around the First World War up to the beginning of the, the Second World War, you can find, and even beyond into the Second World War, you can find the records of the security services uh, and its predecessors contained there. Uh, the reference is KV, Records of the Security Service, um, and here it's records of the security service and its predecessors are contained here. World War One historical reports and other papers, 1908 to 1939, are in KV1. Personal files in KV2. Subject files, 1905 to 1919, in KV3. Uh, Second World War historical papers, KV4. Organization files in KV5. And list files are in KV6. So you're able to sort of uncover the mechanics of the workings of the security service in the first few decades of the 20th century, which it makes me want to... Um, makes me want to go and have a look. Yes, <laughs> spend a day at the archives. <laughs> me too. Uh, I love it when that happens as well. You suddenly think, oh, God, yes. like, that's it. I'm just going to go... I'm going to go and go and have a look. So what is... Just to wrap up, what is... what's What's spying to you, Sam? Spying's all about family history and uh, writing novels. It's about honey and lipsticks yeah. and um, secret writing. Sex. Codes, sex, mm. dog poo. Yeah. Um, pigeons. Who knew? Um, and hats and and hat stands, wash those, stands. That rattling noise is my dog having a scratch. He's fed yes. up. He wants to go out for a walk. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this, do please let us know that you have. Leave us a review wherever you can. Ideally on iTunes, that would be great. It makes all the difference in the world. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected at Unexpected Pod. Do please check us out on historiesoftheunexpected.com for live stuff. Uh, we've got all sorts of live shows coming up. We've done about 30 shows and there's going to be more. Hopefully we're going to come abroad as well. Hopefully. Um, and some books and stuff. 
And um, one last thing, James and I have set up a Patreon account because we really need your help to support us, to allow us to keep our mics turned on. The equipment's expensive. We have to pay for editing. We have to pay for all the preparations. We have to do it. We have to spend our time here. And anything you can do to support us will be gratefully received. We've got a lovely little community of people who listen to our podcast and say how much they do it. And um, we want to keep this going. And we absolutely love doing it more than anything either of us do outside of our jobs. So if you could just give us $2 a month, trust me, it will make a massive difference. And a huge thank you to those people who have already been generous enough to sponsor us. Uh, Emperor Zach, uh, Queen Angela, uh, Lady Sally, uh, Lady Laura, uh, Lord Robert, um, Lord the FMG, Dame Joe. We give you a title. Sir, Sir Joe, Sir Adam, um... Uh, Dame Sana, uh, Sir Andrew, Sir Anthony, uh, Sir Mike, uh, Dame Victoria, Dame Tors, um, Princess Michelle, um, uh, Sir Les, uh, Sir Giles, uh, Lord Matthew, uh, Lord Daniel, uh, Sir Ollie, uh, Prince Phil, uh, and Dame Julia. Well, uh, thank you all. <laughs> and uh, you can check us out patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected um, we'll give you a title uh, for supporting we us we, we absolutely will. We, we might, might even knight you make you an emperor or an empress thank you so much cash for titles <laughs> bye bye <laughs> thank you bye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.